Well, good morning, CBC family, guests. Man, great, great to see the rest of your faces. I'm just saying. Man, it's nice. All of you online, we look forward to seeing the rest of your faces too. You know, when I think of um, some moments in my life that were a little bit of uh, difficult moments, I think of growing up through school as a skinny little kid with thick glasses and big ears. Um, that was a bully magnet and a girl repellent. I'm just saying, okay? I think about some of the mental abuse issues I had to navigate with my father. I think about my life's dream of being in the Air Force ever since I was a child, being snatched away weeks before high school graduation, and then just months of aimless wandering and discouragement that followed that. I think about my best friend's 19-year-old sister dying in a private plane crash. I think about a few years ago when I sat in a bed recovering from an unforeseen neck surgery that I didn't see coming. I think about countless times walking with family, walking with friends, walking with church family through crisis, loss, grief, tragedy. And these are moments in my life where I didn't necessarily feel like God was close. And moments where I was kind of like, God, why are you allowing this to happen? I don't understand. Now, in those moments, I, I didn't lose my faith. I didn't abandon my faith in God. I didn't stop trusting God. I just was wrestling and struggling with how I felt. Have you had those moments too? I'm pretty sure you have. In fact, some of you might be having those moments right now. You're unemployed. You're broke. You've got health issues going on in your family. You're battling addiction. You've got a prodigal child. Your marriage is in trouble. Um, you're, you're severely lonely. Just moments in your life where you go, God, I don't necessarily feel you close by. And I'm praying, but I don't necessarily hear anything back right now. And I'm not sure why you're allowing this to happen. Where are you? Those moments happen in our lives. The question I have for you is this. In those moments... Will you succumb to your feelings or will you surrender in faith to God? Because that's really the battle that we have. Will we let our feelings rule and dictate our lives or will we let our faith rule our hearts and our lives? Now, feelings aren't bad. God gave us feelings. He hardwired them into us, right? But here's the thing. Our feelings do not determine reality. Our feelings don't determine truth even though the world is trying to tell you otherwise. Our feelings process reality, react to truth, especially when it comes to who God is and His character and His will and His plan. So we can't let our lives be led by our feelings. And really what I want uh, us to rally our mind around is this big thought this morning, is that the surrendered soul chooses faith over feelings. When I say surrendered soul, it's a person who's humbly yielding their life to God's rule and reign. And so that surrendered soul will choose to have faith over feelings. Notice I'm not saying faith instead of feelings, right? Because we still have feelings. That's unrealistic. That, that's almost spiritually abusive to say, well, you've got to have faith, you know, not feelings. No, we just have to choose faith over our feelings. That's what the surrendered soul will do. And if we choose to surrender to God in those tough moments, not only is that good soul care, not only is that good for our soul, but it actually evidences that there's been good soul care. The reason that we can trust God in those rough moments is because we continue to cultivate a healthy relationship with God through soul care. Now, that's what we've been talking about for the last five weeks. This is the last and sixth week in this series called Soul Care. We've been in the Psalms looking at what it takes to cultivate a healthy soul. If you're a guest or if you're newer and this is very intriguing to you, you can go to our CVC podcast. You can go online at cvconline.org. You can go to our CVC app and you can watch the previous messages uh, to, to learn more about how to care for your soul. Next week, we're, we're launching a new series. We're going to go back into the book of Ephesians 5 and 6 in a series called War and Peace. And we're going to be looking at areas where we sometimes experience conflict or war, where we shouldn't, like marriage and parenting and work relationships. And at the same time, we're going to look at areas where sometimes we feel at peace, but in reality, we're at war. We're going to look at spiritual warfare. 
So that's where we're going starting next week, but today we're going to conclude this soul care series, and we're going to look closer at this surrendered soul that will choose faith over feelings. And the psalm we're going to be looking at today is Psalm 22. So I invite you to open up your Bibles or fire up your Bible app to the, to the middle-ish of your Bible in the Psalms. Look for Psalm 22. As you're turning there, this is a song that God wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the ancient shepherd, the ancient songwriter, warrior, the second king of Israel, King David, from 1000 B.C., right around there. And the psalm really has two sections. The first section, the verse 21 verses, is really three pairs of this tug-of-war and wrestling of giving a complaint to God, followed by expressing confidence in God. So first there's an expression of complaint, followed by an expression of confidence. We'll see those, like round one, round two, round three. And then the last 10 verses are really just 10 verses of praising God and declaring faith and trust and hope in Him. And we're going to navigate the psalm. We're going to break into those two sections and, and, and engage them differently. The first section, we're going to look through these first 21 verses at this wrestling match between suffering and surrender, complaint and confidence in God. And there's three themes that will emerge as we start. There's going to be a theme of suffering, there's going to be a theme of surrender, and there's going to be a theme of praising. We're going to see all three of those through this entire psalm. And as we dive in, Again, I want you to anchor yourself to this big thought that the surrendered soul chooses faith over feelings. With that, let's look at Psalm 22. Psalm 22, starting with verse 1. We'll just read a little bit, teach, read a little bit, teach, read a little bit, teach. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Here we have an expression, expression of suffering, right? And what's interesting is a lot of times when we read the Bible, whether on purpose or on accident, we kind of take out the emotion. Like God made us emotive, right? And so this is not like, my God, my God. why? How, you know, that's not what we're seeing here. David is crying out to God. If we were to read this more in the tone of how David probably pinned it, like just pressing down, right? It'd be more like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you far from saving me? Like, where are you? Why can't I hear you? Why don't I feel you? That's what's going on here. He's suffering. There's this emotional intensity. God, David feels like God is far away, that he's silent, that he's absent, that he doesn't care about his pain, that he's invisible. Ever felt that? He's expressing suffering. He's lifting up this complaint, but notice... He's not abandoning his faith as he's suffering. He's not abandoning his complaint as he's crying out to God. In fact, even the way he approaches God, he says, my God, my God. So he's not saying, God, if you're up there. He's not saying, God, if you're real. He's saying, no, you're there. You're real. My feelings don't define reality. You're real. But I'm going to come to you with what's hurting me. I'm going to lay it before you because I'm suffering. Where are you? And so he's complaining. I, I love the fact that God gives us permission when we see passages like this. By the way, there's lots of these. This isn't the only one. Read the book of Job, right? Okay. There's a lot of places in the scripture where God gives us permission to kind of complain to him, to express our pain and suffering, but yet not abandon our faith when we're in that place. So he has this complaint. Now he follows it up with an expression of confidence in God. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, yet, right? He's like, where are you? And then he goes, yet, you're holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. We just saw David talk about suffering. Now he's surrendering. In the midst of my suffering, in the midst of my pain, where are you? I don't feel you. Where are you? But... When I back up and zoom out and look at the big picture, and I think about how you've shown up for God's people, you've always, you've always come through. Maybe not when I wanted you to, maybe not how we wanted you to, maybe your timing was different, your answer was different, but ultimately, your track record, God, is pretty good. You show up, you're faithful. He's expressing pain, but he's coming back to this place of belief. And then he says, you're holy. My feelings aren't defining the reality of who you are and what you do. 
It says, you're holy. You're enthroned on the praises of Israel. That doesn't mean that God is dependent on the praise of people to be enthroned. It's because he is enthroned, that he does sit above, that now Israel and all of God's people are praising him and enthroning him on their praises. And so this is a way of saying, God, you're above my feelings. You're in heaven, I'm on earth, right? You're above my feelings, you're above my opinion, you're above my pain, and I'm gonna surrender to you. And you've been faithful to those who trust you. And although feeling forsaken, he remembers God's faithfulness and he surrenders. And I think a way that we can understand that is we know as parents that a lot of times we make decisions that our kids don't understand. And we don't give them things that they want or not when they want it. Or we don't answer the way they like or the way, the way they wish we would answer. Or there's times we discipline them. Or there's times that we say, you know what? The best way for you to learn this lesson is to feel the sting of the consequence. So instead of shielding you, I'm going to let you feel the sting. In those moments, it would be very easy for us because we've all been kids. We've all, you know, like, why did you let my mom, you know, mom and dad, why did you do that? Why didn't you do that? We've all, we all can relate to that. In those moments, our kids might feel like, well, my parents don't love me. My parents don't care. But nothing could be further from the truth. Those feelings don't determine the reality of a parent's love because if you're a parent, you're a grandparent, you know right now, you fiercely love your kids and there is nothing, there is nothing that will stop you from loving your kids. Nothing. But they just don't feel that in the moment. In the same way, we've got to back up and go, God, no matter what I feel, that does not determine your reality. You're real. You're holy. You're enthroned. You're good. You're in charge even though I'm hurting and I don't understand why. That's what we see here. David suffers. He surrenders round one. Round two of suffering. Look at verses six through eight. He goes, but I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. What we see here is more suffering. Now David's getting personal. He's going, God, I'm hurting, I'm suffering. I don't know where you're at. I'm not feeling you right now. And on top of that, now all these people are personally attacking me. Because as I'm suffering, I'm not giving up my faith in you. And they don't get it. And so now they're mocking me. They're, they're verbally assaulting me. They're demeaning me. They're scorning me. They're despising me because of who I am and because I trust you. He says, I'm a worm, not a man. Some of you are like, well, what does that mean? let's put it this way. I even Googled it last yesterday. I couldn't find one. I have yet to find a school or a sports team that has a worm as a mascot. <laughs> I'm just saying. Like, I was, hey, we want to we have this big sports team. Let's get a worm. Like, who's, who's doing that? Why? Because worms, like, they're helpless. They're just this gross little wiggly things on the ground. Like we have these big rainstorms and you see them on the sidewalk and you walk by and if you're cruel, you step on them or kick them around or you just ignore them. You, they, they mean nothing to you. They're weird. Uh, no school district's going to be like, hey, North Wellington worms, woo! You know, like we don't want anything to do with worms. Why? Because they're, they're just despised little creatures and we don't really know why God made them. And if you're a fish, if you like fishing, you probably have a theory, but Dave's going, that's how people see me. They don't see me as a person. They acknowledge me as a person. They, they look at me like I'm a worm. They verbally assault me and they scorn me and they despise me. And you know what? They look at me suffering and that I don't give up my faith and all they can do is attack and mock. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've got friends, you've got people in your life that even though you've had hardship in your life, you talk about God's goodness and like, you are crazy. They talk about, you know, you having faith and like you, you, should, you should abandon God. He's abandoned you and they, they start to mock you. If God's for you, then why is this bad stuff happening? And the outside person will never understand a fierce faith. And David is demonstrating that surrender here right now. He doesn't succumb to his feelings. He surrenders to faith in God. And then he says, after talking about the suffering, he says in verses 9 through 11, he says, yet... I'm being seen as a worm, not a man. I'm being assaulted verbally. Yet, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. 
I love where David just, just goes here and God is just pressing in on him through the power of the Holy Spirit to, to send this message loud and clear. That even though there's hardship, David goes, well, first, when I was saying you've, you've abandoned me, like you've forsaken me, he goes, I look at the history of Israel and God's people and go, you've shown up as faithful. And now David's getting personal. He's going, wait, 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 wait. And as I look over my life, you've been faithful to me. Like some of you are sitting here, you look over your life, you are, at, it's an absolute surprise that you're even here still. Like you should have been gone a long time ago, right? Bad things should have happened to you. Choices should have took you out. Somehow God's been faithful to you despite you giving him the middle finger and just living your life the way you want to live. And the only reason you're here is God's grace. And just in case you're tempted to think like, oh, I've never really been a bad person. I've kind of been a good person. Oh, don't trust in yourself. The only reason you're here is because of God's grace, right? And so here's, here's this whole heart-wrenching expression of suffering followed by, yet when I look at my personal history, you've always shown up. From birth, you installed in me this ability to trust you. Suffering, surrender, suffering surrender round two and then he goes into a third round of suffering and he really elaborates this time he says many bulls encompass me bulls of Bashan surround me I'm just going to time out there somebody like what's up with the bulls like we're not talking Chicago bulls here okay this is a song this is poetry this is you know uh, language mechanisms to illustrate what he's feeling bulls are big ominous muscular brutal creatures you never want to be on the wrong end of a bull's temper if you don't believe that let me lock you in a cage with a mad bull none of us would sign up for that so you kind of see where David's going he's like many bulls right man they encompass me these bulls of Bashan this area that was known for the amount of bulls that they have big strong bulls he says, they open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. A potsherd is a dry piece of clay. You've ever walked along the side of a road and you see like a little piece of dried up clay that's been there for a long time? That's a potsherd. A little chunk of dried up clay. He says, so... Uh, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. He's like, I'm not dead yet, but I'm just about there. <laughs> For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. What a, what a picture he paints of, of these people that are taking on these characteristics of animals like dogs and lions and bulls and, and they're, they're wanting to viciously attack and tear him apart. Physical pain. He is painting a graphic picture of unjust violence being done to him. He's encircled by enemies. He's unrightfully receiving this treatment and it's life threatening. And he communicates this overwhelming feeling of being surrounded by bloodthirsty, predatory, brutal people who want to trample him and rip him apart. Some of you are going, it sounds like my workplace, you know? And then he gives this detailed description of a physical torment at the hands of the people. And in the midst of this agony, in the midst of the suffering, an opportunity to abandon his faith and let his feelings run his life, he's faced with a choice. Feelings or faith? It's no surprise what we see next. Look at verse 19 through 21. He says, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Again, in the midst of all this pain, all this suffering, all this life-threatening anguish, he turns to God and declares trust, confidence in God. No one else can help me. No one's capable of helping me but you. Come to me quickly. Rescue me. Save me. You can save me. You will save me. There is absolute confidence in God in the midst of the suffering. It's faith being expressed. And it's faith instead of feelings. And he surrenders to God 
And what I love about this moment is the same guy who starts off this whole psalm by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Has turned a corner now and saying, but you're going to show up and you're faithful and you're going to rescue. I don't know how, I don't know when, I don't know why, but my trust is not moving. What what, what a beautiful picture. It's so good for our soul (laughs) to see this. And as amazing as this is, there's even more here. And some of you know exactly where we're going with this. See, these verses sound familiar, don't they? Because this is not just a psalm where God used David to write about his own life. This is where the Bible becomes a supernatural book. God's word, divine. Because now what God's doing is he's taking what he's given David to write and he's blowing it up and expanding it beyond David's life very much beyond David's life. And now David is not just writing about himself. He is writing about someone else who's going to come in the future, a thousand years later in the future. This is what's called a prophetic psalm. One of the ways that God gives evidence that he's real is that he has prophecy written down, predictions, events, descriptions that happen hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before they're fulfilled so that when we see them, we can look at the before and look at the after and go, there's no way this is possible. Only God could do that. God's real. And that's what God's doing here with David. This is uh, what's called a messianic psalm because God said that he was going to send a Messiah, which means an anointed one, a deliverer, a rescuer, someone who's going to come on a mission to save God's people and ransom or rescue us back to God because we run from God. And so this is a psalm, it's a messianic psalm, and specifically we see as we look at Psalm 22, the language that describes, this is what's so amazing, David describes in graphic detail what a person would experience on the cross at crucifixion. In detail. Some of you are like, okay, what's the big deal? (laughs) Not only did he write it a thousand years before Jesus died on the cross, he wrote it hundreds of years before the crucifixion was even a form of execution. He's writing about a form of execution that didn't even exist when he wrote this. That's how God's just taking it and expanding it now. And so you look at these details And what happens is if you were to open your Bible, we don't have time, but if you look like Matthew chapter 27, you fast forward from the Old Testament in history, right, to the New Testament where Christ lived, you'll see the match. And you'll see Psalm 22 come to life in Jesus, and specifically his events around the death on his cross. So think about some of these events. Jesus, for example, was surrounded by a battalion of Roman soldiers. Like how many Roman soldiers does it take to kill a guy? He's got a battalion around him, like a bunch of bulls, encircling him, threatening his life. And they strip him naked, and they put a robe on him, and they give him a crown of thorns and smash it into his head, and they give him a reed as a mock scepter as a king. They beat him with it, and they spit on him, and they mock him. Sound familiar from Psalm 22? I'm surrounded. I'm despised. I'm scorned. This is all unfolding now as Jesus is living it out a thousand years later. And this, they, then they took him and they crucified him. And when they crucified him, you know what the soldiers did at the foot of the cross? They gambled for his clothing. Just like Psalm 22 says, they divided his garments and gambled for them. Like Jesus didn't script this. Jesus didn't go like, hey, I read Psalm 22. I kind of want to go out in a big fashion, so I'm going to write some scripts. And hey, hey, you guys over here, would you collaborate with me? And when I'm dying, can you? Like this is, only God could do this. He didn't have control over these events in the moment. He was surrendering to the overall narrative of what God had written and played out. And on top of that, as he was hanging on the cross, the crowd the priests that were present, the scribes, even the robbers next to him on his left and right. He was encircled. Remember David's language? I'm encircled. I'm encompassed by people who mocked me that said, let God rescue him. All these people that were surrounding Christ, guess what they were mocking and saying to him? Let God rescue you. You claim to be God? Come off the cross. It's like verbatim Psalm 22 from a thousand years before. And then the physical aspects. That's just the dynamics. Look at the physical aspects of what you see in Psalm 22 come alive in Matthew 27. 
In Psalm 22, David says, his hands and feet were pierced with nails. Here's the thing. We have no record of that actually ever happening to David, by the way. David's talking about things. We go, uh, David went through a lot, but we're not sure this happened. This is where he kind of transcends times. Now it's a dual passage. Jesus' hands and feet were pierced, like Psalm 22 says. Jesus was drenched with sweat as he was slowly emptied of his life on the cross, poured out like water, says Psalm 22. Jesus was painfully and awkwardly strained and stretched on the cross. My bones are out of joint, Psalm 22 says. His heart physically ruptured. When Jesus was on the cross and they wanted to make sure he was dead, a lot of you know this, they took a spear and they thrust it into his chest. And when they did that, it says, water and blood flowed from him. Psalm 22 says, my heart melts like wax inside my chest Jesus fulfilled that he was dehydrated on the cross Psalm 22 says like a dried up piece of clay like a potsherd his tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth we see Jesus on the cross say I thirst like Psalm 22 refers to and then it says they can count all my bones this has a dual meaning we think one is that as Jesus is stretched out on the cross, you can see his ribcage, you can see his bones, and all those staring count his bones. But here's another way to understand that language. I can count all my bones as another way to say none of them got broken. See, when you study the Old Testament sacrificial system, the sacrificial lamb had to be flawless, perfect. If a lamb had a broken bone, it couldn't be used. Psalm 22 is saying that I count all my bones, meaning no bone will be broken. A lot of you know the common way that the Roman soldiers either accelerated the death of someone dying on the cross or made sure they were dead. They did what? They broke the knees. As that person was hanging on the cross, relying on pushing up on the nail in their feet and pulling with the nail stuck through their wrists, they had to fight for every breath. They would inhale and then exhale well, all he had to do was break the knees and he could no longer pull himself up asphyxiation within minutes when they came to Jesus he was already dead they didn't break a bone on his body they pierced him instead Psalm 22 and then if that wasn't enough when you look at Matthew chapter 27 verse 46 at 3 p.m. shortly before he dies Jesus calls out in the common language of the day, Aramaic, he says this, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see what Jesus just did? Jesus reached back a thousand years into Psalm 22 and plucked a verse and brought it to the real time of the moment. And every Jewish boy and girl, man and woman, would have gone, that's Psalm 22. What was Jesus doing? <laughs> In his final moments, you know what Jesus was doing? He was teaching. He was preaching. And he was pointing to himself. He pointed to a text that was pointing to him. So that when people heard, why would he say that? Anyone who would like unfold Psalm 22 would start to look at all these events and go, wait a minute. Connect the dots. Connect the dots. This is fulfilled prophecy. Man, it's so obvious when you look at it. But God has to illuminate that for us to see through the eyes of faith so we can see clearly. Why did God, why did Jesus also say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was in anguish and pain, right? But see, we believe not only was he enduring the physical pain of the moment, but there was something much deeper and much heavier going on. Because although the pain of crucifixion was so intense, we believe Jesus was experiencing this greater anguish in the cross that as God the Son sent to die who was both perfectly man and perfectly God was giving his life as an offering as a sacrifice for the sins of mankind. Jesus is God's provided substitute who died for our sins which means that as he was dying on the cross as our substitute every sin of every person in human history past present future was actually being poured out on to him in that moment your most shameful 
actions and thoughts my most shameful action and thoughts were put on Christ and the entire human history is put on Christ it's no wonder that he was crying in anguish and then something mysterious and powerful happened we, we will not fully understand this this side of heaven but something happened in the relationship between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit the triune God one God who demonstrates himself through three persons and what happened is in that moment uh, that although Jesus was taking on sin he didn't cease to be God he didn't give up any of his divinity there was no break in the trinity it wasn't like oh there was three now there's two for a moment right like he was fully God fully man took it all on there was no diminishing of his deity or his godness yet because in that moment as he was taking on sin the holy heavenly father overshadowed the intimacy and the good pleasure and the connection with the son with his wrath and in that moment he felt father where are you he felt father where are you my god my god why have thou forsaken me that's what was going on at a deeper level and in that moment a holy transaction took place as god the father regarded god the son as if he were a sinner Pastor and author Thabiti Anyawile said it this way. He said at 3 o'clock that dark Friday afternoon, the father turned his face away and the ancient eternal fellowship between father and son was broken as divine wrath rained down like, and this is the phrase that captured me, like a million Sodom and Gomorrahs. In the terror and agony of it all, Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's just how far God will go to show you that he loves you that's just how dedicated to his mission Jesus was to save you and to save me and what choices are we making and what lives are we living because of it lives that are driven by our feelings or the faith in the one who would do such a thing Christ's suffering became our saving Christ forsaking became our forgiving. And him taking our place on the cross was so that we could join him in his place in heaven. No greater love could we ever discover than this kind of love that God shows us in Christ. And if you know Christ, this realization should deepen your commitment, deepen your faith, Deepen your devotion to love God and live for Him and be committed to His mission to tell others about Him. And if you don't know Christ, this is a huge invitation that God gives to say, Come, you are welcome. Humble yourself, confess your sin, believe in Christ, and come. You know, another way to think about what just took place on the cross is that although it didn't look like it, God was in control of everything. In that moment, everybody that was present and everybody that had the feels about what was going on didn't get the whole picture. Because where they only saw the crucifixion, God already saw the resurrection. Where they only saw death and loss of life, God the Father saw life an eternal life, the new life that was going to come because of this moment. And where people only saw loss, God saw victory. So are you going to let your feelings, which only see this much, drive your life? Or are you going to trust the one who sees everything, more than you see in the moment? Pastor and author Jeff Vanderstelt wrote a book called Gospel Fluency. It's our recommended reading this quarter. If you look, it's summertime. Some of you are going on vacation. Some of you are going to sit by. Grab a book. Grab this book, and learn how the gospel impacts everyday life. Pastor Vanderstelt says this: If there was ever a time when it looked as if God had lost power, had lost control, it was when Jesus was dead in the tomb, and yet God was completely in control the whole time. He was so in control that what looked like defeat was actually victory over Satan, sin, and death. In his death, he crushed them all. So, as you have moments of suffering, of feeling like God's far, of feeling like you're invisible, 
feel like he doesn't care. You've got to choose faith over feelings. You've got to surrender to who God is, not to how God should be the way you think it should be. So we've seen suffering, we've seen surrendering, and now this psalm takes a turn to praising. And I'm going to invite our worship team to come up to be with me because I want to enter into this moment differently than what we have been doing. I don't want to teach about the praising in the next verses. I want us to use them and leverage them as a way to praise God ourselves, to enter into it as actual praising as well. And so as we prepare for that, um, I do want to give you also an opportunity to connect because this kind of a conversation is poking some of you in tender places. And you say, I've got questions, or I need to talk to somebody. If that's you, whether in this room or online, use our CVC response number and just text the word connect. Like, I've got to talk to somebody. I've got questions. I'm hurting. I kind of need to revisit this area of my life. We'd love to connect with you. We've got friends of CVC right now literally standing by ready to help direct you to a next step. So just get your phone out in the next minute or two and text connect to that number. If you don't know Christ the Savior and you're ready to follow Christ, or you just want to know what that means and want to learn more about following Christ, do the same thing. Just text the word connect to that number and then uh, we'll interact with you and see how we can help you take that next step. But what we're going to do right now is we're going to enter into this moment of, of praising God. And so uh, I'm going to invite you to stand. Let's go and stand. And the worship team is going to lead us in a song that talks about the worthiness of God, the faithfulness of God, and how he's enthroned in our praises. That because he's high and lifted up, we praise the one who's enthroned. Okay? And I'm going to come up a few times, and I'm going to read through some of the verses that are left in this text. And I'm going to guide us in how to kind of process them and pray because of them. So that's what we're going to do for the remainder of our time. So let's prepare our hearts to worship and enter into this moment. We've come to join the song So long before our life To raise our voice along Heaven and earth alike We've seen your face Your mercy without end, a king who bled and died, a God who sacrificed. So be enthroned upon the praises of a thousand generations. You are worth, Lord of all. To you, slain and risen King, we lift our voice with heaven and see it worthy, Lord of all. All through this life we lead, all through eternity, our endless prayer.
praise God in verse 22. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the the affliction of the afflicted. And he's not hidden his face, but he has heard when he cried to him. I love that David says, in the midst of the congregation, when I'm with God's people, we're going we're gonna to lift up God. Because he, he doesn't despise us. He doesn't turn his back on us. He calls us to trust him. And so right now, this is going to be a twofold moment where I'm going to ask you to pray. The first is just you and God, silently. You can mutter under your breath, whatever. Just pray. And I would say isolate something that you've suffered or are suffering. Or maybe that you think you might be suffering in the future. Isolate that. And just make this your prayer. God, although this is the suffering I've had or have or might have, I will trust you. Give a declaration to God right now that I will trust you. Just pray. Just take that moment, just you and God. Lord, I will trust you despite... Like David, we're in a congregational setting with others. There are people around you. There are people online that are suffering, and, and this is hard. They need you to pray for them right now. They need you to go to God to intercede and ask God to help them trust Him in the midst of their suffering. So would you take a minute? And you can look across. If you're on the balcony, like look down on these folks here or look across the way. Think about those online. We just take a minute and we just say, I, I might not know these people next to me or across the room, but God, I pray whatever they're going through, whatever they're suffering or will suffer, that they would trust you. Would you just pray for each other right now that way? Pray for each other that way right now. Psalm 22, 25 says, From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And David says, what I have found to be true about God will be discovered by people all over the world. There are millions in this world that don't know Christ. They don't know the love of Christ. They don't understand scripture. Right now, I'm going to ask you, take a minute. Pick a country. Pick two countries that God has put on your heart. Indonesia, Asia, Africa, the country of your heritage, Italy, Japan, France, Germany, Ukraine, whatever. Pick a country, pick two countries right now. Would you pray that God would send messengers into those countries to proclaim what David's proclaiming and that people and other nations, the families of the earth, would come to know Jesus. Pray for the nations right now. Thrown upon the praises of a thousand generations 
congregation and now he says all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust even the one who could not keep himself alive from the wealthy to the weak all will come before God and worship him and then he says posterity which means your descendants posterity shall serve him it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Look, all you teenagers, all you children, I would would not want to be a teen today. You are living in a world gone mad. The things that they are trying to bend your mind to believe, to abandon the God who made you and loves you, and you're fighting a fight. And right now, we're going to pray for you. And we're not going to stop praying for you because you've got to be a light You can't just be a follower of the world. You've got to be a rock, a light, an anchor rooted in Christ to stand. And so this is our chance to pray for the next generation, for your children, for your children's children, kids not even born yet, your nieces, your nephews, the kids that God's brought into this church, the kids in your neighborhood right now. I ask that you would just bathe the next generations in prayer. Pray for your kids by name. Pray for your grandkids by name. Pray for kids you don't even know. Just right now, lift up the next generation in prayer. Pray for them right now.
down they worship you God and we join them Lord for all eternity we will say worthy is the Lord this is a song that's been sung for generations Lord and it's one that will be sung for generations to come because you are worthy God and we praise you in Jesus name amen well we're so glad to share this time together centered around Christ centered around his word uh, we'd like to invite you back tonight. We've got baptisms at 5.30 p.m. out on the lawn. It'd be great to see you there. And I hope you have a wonderful afternoon.